It is a period of civil war. Podcast presenters hosting from a hidden base have won their victory against the evil problematic empire. During the battle, the podcasters managed to steal the secret plans to the empire's ultimate weapon. The um, analogy. Was that it? I gave up at this wow. point. I was like, I am too tired to try. So, Can I you just know, say? Yes. First of all, strong start. Thanks. Uh, that, that's it. Just that. That's all. That's End of first list. Of all. Yeah. End of list. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Welcome to a problem squared. If you are new to the podcast, I am Beck Hill, a comedian, presenter, and author, and I am joined by mathematician, YouTuber, celebrity, and uh, friend. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Matt Parker. And in this podcast, we will try to solve your problems. Our listeners send us problems. We try to solve them. And that, that's basically it. That's it. Yeah. Welcome new listeners. And and welcome back old. On this episode, I will de-wobble tables using maths. I'll solve a little question about teeth brushing. We've got some light AOB, including we check back in on our review situation. Ooh. Stay tuned. So, Matt, it's been, it's been, I think last time we saw each other was Blue Dot, wasn't it? Yeah, we were in a field. Yeah. And actually, you left before I did. Yes. That's going to be important in a moment. Okay. So, Lucy and I stayed until the very end of Blue Dot. Uh huh. We saw Bjork, which was hilarious. Okay. Did you see any online chat about no. the Bjork performance? No. So, do you remember when we saw Groove Amada? Yes. And there were like lasers. And lights, and they were projecting on the radio telescope at Jodrell Bank. Yeah, it looked awesome. And it was just all going off. Bjork did none of that. Oh. A tiny, tiny Icelandic lady came out with a full orchestra, and she would stand stationary in the middle of the stage. No one could see her and sing a song over an orchestra, which is not the kind of music that really pierces through a huge crowd of people standing in a field. So don't get me wrong, I had a great time. Number one, I thought it was very hilarious how ill-filtered this was for a festival environment. Yep. And second, I'm a big fan of Bjork. Lucy's a mega fan, right? So we, we had a good time in that regard, but it wasn't a spectacle. It didn't fill the space. <laughs> and it was very, it was the same thing every time. I love that you're like this mega star, major singer came out with a full orchestra and yet it didn't fill enough space and didn't feel... Nah. <laughs> it would have been great in an indoor tiered seating venue. Yes. Yeah. Would have been spec spectacular mm. but in a massive field where no one can see mm. and the default setting is standing around chatting yeah it just felt like quiet background music in a pub because you couldn't right. see and it wasn't that loud and everyone's chatting and i had a good time i caught up with some mates they didn't project anything on the dish they just didn't utilize anything that's part of the blue dot festival i think that mm. that's my um but something amazing did happen during that performance and actually okay. i have posted you something back because we are recording separately today do you have the delivery that I arrived? I do have at your the house? delivery. Now, I need to warn you, it's a two stage delivery. So we'll just get the first stage out of the way. So if you pop it open. All right. First so, of all, uh, the merch showed up. Okay. We now have our Problem Squared merch. So I divided it into two piles uh -huh. and put one pile in that, in that envelope. So you can open it up and you can grab it out. Okay. Yeah. So I've got this. Don't open the sub plastic bag. Oh, That's, okay. Uh, inside there. So I have for listeners at home a large, you can probably hear it, a large brown posting sack. Yeah, which, posting um, sack seems accurate. I reused the posting sack 
that the merch was sent to me. I was going to say, it feels like it's quite a nice one, actually. If anyone wants their own uh, paper posting sack sent to them in the post. If they went to uh, problem squared with hyphens between the words dot dot com. Yeah, we can pop that in the show notes. I feel like we probably should link that somewhere. So for people who are just catching up on the podcast, we ordered these T-shirts to be delivered to us at the festival so we could launch them into the crowd using a trebuchet. And they arrived after we had left. And the hotel, in fact, refused delivery. Becca's holding up a t-shirt with the word ding in giant letters across the front. Amazing. The hotel refused delivery. They went back to T-Mill. T-Mill, great customer service. Got in touch. Said at no extra cost. Where do you want them sent instead? And I was like, send them to my house. And they sent them over. T-Mill, they're the best environmentally friendly print-on-demand t-shirt one. Oh, and you've got the holding t-shirt. Do you want to just... Read us out the text on the holding t-shirt. I know some people will, will have heard this in the Blue Dot episode, but I feel like it's, it, it bears repeating. Yeah. When we created the shop, we just popped some holding place merch on there until yeah, holding shirts. Until we had graphics and stuff. So this one, we mentioned it in episode 039, the Blue Dot one. Yep. Yep. And it says, name another podcast who launches their merchandise via trebuchet. I'll wait. And then a problemsquare.com. And weight is in yeah, a mass. W-E-I-G-H-T. In a gravitational field. Yeah. It's very funny. Although we ended up launching my own personal t-shirts into the crowd because these didn't arrive in time. But now you have them. Yes. So first of all, that's just distribution of t-shirts. So you've got some now, I got some. We can, you know, wear our own merch. Yes. There's quite a lot here. And and we made them big because we wanted to make sure whoever caught them would... Some are big, yeah. some are small. I gave you, I just gave you a whole spectrum yep. of different size t-shirts. Yes. Secondly, there's another bag in there because... Do you remember we were very excited that we, we were on the poster for Blue Dot? Because, you know, we're just a podcast we do because it's fun. And they didn't put our names on the poster. They put a problem squared. Yeah. Which meant the first five minutes of us doing the performance was people realizing, oh, it's those people. It turns out, as I was just looking around, a bit distracted during the Bjork concert, I noticed someone nearby wearing the official festival hoodie. And only a very small subset of all acts get put on the hoodie. Oh. And would you believe, Beck, we made the hoodie. So I ran to the merch store. This is last thing on the Sunday. They had sold out of everything apart from <gasps> large white hoodies. So I got us both a large white hoodie. I've got my, oh mine's my here somewhere. Hang on. Do you want to grab yours out? Yeah. Oh man, this is going to get so much spaghetti on it. <laughs> it's got a, it's a real lounging around the house size hoodie. So on the front, it just says blue dot. Yeah. Look on the back. Good, uh, good quality. Um, <gasps> there, there we are. are. Oh my goodness. I mean, second row from the bottom, <laughs> but still. Yeah, but. Not many people make the hoodie. No, there aren't that many. Look at that. To put it into context for people listening, the top of the listing is like Björk, Groove Armada, Mogwai, Metronomy, Tim Peake. That guy. Hannah Peel. And then a ton of other, like we've got Stuart Lee, Adam Buxton. Adam Buxton, yeah. Yeah. A problem squared. That's very nice. So that means that if anyone listening went to Blue Dot Festival and bought a t-shirt or hoodie or something with the lineup on it, they now have that. Oh. They've now got a problem squared. Amazing. Isn't that something? Well. Doesn't say it's a podcast or anything. I mean, who knows what people think that is. This makes up for uh, when we showed up at the security and they couldn't find us under a problem square. <laughs> they couldn't so we, find us on the You said list. it might be under Matt Parker. It wasn't under that. And so then you were like, oh, well, you know, we'll radio someone. The guy walked off. <laughs> and I was like, well, it's not under my name. It's not under our names, right? The guy, but yeah, it turns out it was under Beck Hill. It was under Beck Hill. It's alphabetical. It was under Beck Hill's a problem squared with some guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. 
So there you are. Thank you so Pretty. much. Oh, do you know what? I started putting it on and then realized I can't put this on. I'm in a cupboard <laughs> on a hot day with multiple lights around me. So I'm not going to wear it right now, but I will put it on. Yeah, on. I'm in my study. I am already sweating a lot in my study. <laughs> I'm not putting on the hoodie. So there you are. Oh, Let's thank see. you. That's made my day, that has. There you go. Isn't that something? I we made the hoodie. hoodie. Yeah, thank you. So apart from your recent hoodie acquisition, how are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. I did Deer Shed Festival the weekend after I did Blue Dot Festival. But at the festival, the night before we filmed, I did a reading from yep. the oh. uh, from one of the Horror Heights books. Are you a book to do this? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I just um, oh, good. gathered good. all the small children. Guerrilla and... marketing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I did a reading and um, sold some books and did some signing. It was lovely. I met all these great kids. I did a Q&A after the reading and one of the girls in the audience popped up her hand when I was doing the Q&A and just said, who looks after pudding when you're away? <laughs> and I was like, oh. And then I had to explain to everyone, like, pudding's a hamster. And right now my, ha- my husband's looking after him. Afterwards, when I was doing the signings, turns out that their dad listens to A Problem Squared. I think that's how they knew about pudding. And then all the kids had questions about pudding because, you know, as soon as you bring up that, they've got no more questions about the book. No. In fact, at one stage, I said something about how pudding's nocturnal and sometimes he gets a bit bitey, like a vampire. And then a kid put up their hand and said, will there be a vampire hamster in the next Horror Heights book? (laughs) I was like, well, maybe there needs to be now. (laughs) But that leads me on to some sad news because a week after that, last weekend, unfortunately, Pudding has left us for the big wheel in the sky. It was very sad. It was very sad. And he was two, which, as we know from previous episodes, is sort of their average lifespan. He was very happy. No suspicious circumstances. Great two years. I don't yeah. think anyone did it in the, in the dark <laughs> it <wasn't> night. Right, <laughs> it didn't have any enemies. wasn't many of Pudding's many, many nemesi. I think he just got super excited and it was a bit much for him. But, you know, in a nice way. That's a good way to go. Yeah. So the reason I say this, I wouldn't normally say this because it sort of brings the tone down a bit. But um, I'm not sure whether to continue with the Pudding Squared and still do hamster-related ah. things. Or whether we shelve that for a while. I might get another hamster in the future, but we're going to leave some time so that it doesn't feel disrespectful. (laughs) I feel like at a minimum, out of respect for pudding, we should retire the segment until we um, decide otherwise. Yeah. So he's, he's gone past the edge of the solar system now. He's off to other other solar systems. Moving forward through the yeah, solar system. Yeah. So I just wanted to thank everyone because I've had so many questions about him from people I have just met. <laughs> and it's really sweet. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Thank you, everyone. I don't think he will ever know just how incredibly loved he was. And also my love and heart goes out to anyone else who's lost a pet because it really sucks. But hey, we're on a hoodie. unless we did that first right because we can't go yeah from in memory of pudding to hey here's a hoodie yeah pudding will live on through being such a big influence on the podcast yeah so i'm gonna dedicate this episode of problem squared to pudding the unofficial mascot i'll give you of the podcast oh i can't believe we never thought of podcast ah the podcast i mean it feels weird going straight to the agenda now The first problem of this episode comes from James Tunstall, who says, I, along with what I can only assume is everyone, dislike tables which wobble. Most of the time you just shove a bit of anything under the leg and you're all set. But what if you don't have a bit of anything? Given a four-legged table, can you always find a spot on a surface where the table will sit without wobbling? Or, put another way, does there exist a surface on which a table will always wobble? So, Matt... 
I mean, I think you could find a surface that will always wobble if you just cut one of the legs short. <laughs> uh, yes. And in fact, you've got straight to an important point here, which is why is the table wobbly? Is it wobbling mm. because the legs are different lengths or is it wobbling because the surface is uneven? Or because the legs aren't attached properly. Or because legs aren't attached properly. Correct. Yeah. And at that point, you know what? If it's a manufacturing defect in the table, there's not much that can be done. If you're thinking this sounds familiar, this is a concept in mass, the wobbly table problem. Yeah. And it's been around for quite a while. Yeah, because I'm sure in those like life hack listicle things that you get online, I've definitely seen the advice that if you have a wobbly table, you should just rotate it a little bit by a little bit and eventually it will get to a point where it doesn't wobble. I'm pretty sure that's worked for me before. Yeah, and that's why I thought it was quite interesting about this because it's been a mass thing for a long time. Look, I remember at university this being a mass thing. It's been around since the, oh goodness, late 20th century, I think. But the kind of rigorous proof behind it has been lacking. Okay. And so... This is an interesting one where even in math circles, it's kind of this. Oh, there's a uh, the concept that if you're on a wobbly table, if you rotate the table, you don't even have to move it somewhere else. The table already is. You rotate the table. At some point, it will not wobble. Hmm. And actually, practically, that has always worked for me. And there's always a point where it stops wobbling. But proving that rigorously, proving it will always work. And if it doesn't work, what are the conditions under which we know if it will or won't work is super vague. And so actually I brought up the most recent bit of mathematical research into this. Oh. It's called Mathematical Table Turning Revisited. Oh, man. From 2018. I bet there's so many DJs out there who were disappointed when they opened this up. Yeah, they, they were just searching on archive for maths papers about turntables. Yeah. They're like, ah, oh, mathematical turntabling revisited. And so the first paragraph, we investigate under which conditions a rectangular table can be placed with all four feet on a ground Described by a function, and then they got the math symbols for mapping R2 to R, which is already leaping into the proof. But first of all, for people who are unfamiliar with the concept, let's do the hand-wavy solution to this problem. Okay. The solution technically only exists if the legs are all of the same length. So if the legs are different lengths, you're in trouble. It doesn't work anymore. Because you can think of a perverse example... Let's say you've got two very long legs, actually. Diagonally opposite legs are super long, and the ones on the other corners are super short. Yeah, yeah. That, that's just going to fall over. Or mm. you've got to kind of lay it down on just three legs. And we don't accept just three legs as a solution, because maybe it might be stable, but in theory, an annoying table is one that rocks between the two different three-leg arrangements mm-hmm. where it's stable. Like, it leans yeah. on one set of three, and then it rocks the other and rocks backwards and forwards. So we don't accept just being on three legs as a solution to this problem. It's got to be all four, cannot budge, no matter what you do. But if your rectangular table, it used to just be square tables, we now know this is true for rectangular tables, does have four legs that are all the same length, and it wobbles, we know for absolute certain, if you get that table and you rotate it on the spot, there will be a point at which it does not rock, assuming the surface the table is on is continuous, which I'll explain in a moment, and there are no angles in the surface greater than 35.26 degrees. Oh, wow. That's so specific. And also, just to clarify, yep. when you say square or rectangular tables, you're meaning the configuration of the legs, 
rather than the shape yes. of on top. Because you could have a square Correct. table that only has, say, three legs. Or you can have... Yeah, a, a disco rectangle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Our old sausage body. Yep. <laughs> That's a reference to something we found out. Wow, you know, that was a uh, while ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you could have like a square configuration of legs, but with a round table on top, which actually I think is really common. And actually, it's an interesting point saying if you're on a table with three legs... That's always stable. So mm, the power of triangles. Three legs. Yeah, can't go wrong. Issue is, of course, there. If you put too much weight outside of those three legs, you can tip the table over. Yeah, yeah, they've got to be wide legs. So the advantage of a leg in each corner is there's no tabletop outside the legs, so you can't tip it over by putting too much force on the table. There is an argument for yeah, three legs would work, but. It, you can tip it over if you like you sit on it or something. Whereas four legs, that won't happen. So strictly speaking, everything is in terms of these four points, which are the bottom of the legs, and we assume they're all, quote unquote, in the same plane, which basically means they're all the same length, and we assume they're in a rectangular arrangement. Mm-hmm. That, that's the situation for which we know it definitely works. And practically, I've never come across a wobbly table that I couldn't fix by rotating it Unless it was, you know, obviously legs were super short. In fact, a lot of the time, even if it's the legs problem, it'll still be fixed by rotating it because it will still match somewhere on on an uneven surface. Well, I was going to say, for the sake of clarity as well, when we say rotating the table, we're meaning like clockwise, anti-clockwise, as if you were looking down at the table, not rotating it. (laughs) Not flipping it side to side. Yeah, 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 putting it on its upside down. (laughs) Around the Z axis, I would. uh, Yes. To be fair, turn upside down. Maybe it'll stop wobbling. It's a solution. Yeah. The hand-wavy argument for this uses something called the intermediate value theorem, which I'm a big fan of. Great theorem. And what's interesting about the intermediate value theorem, to my mind, is it's surprisingly easy to state and sort of intuitive to understand, but yet very powerful when you apply it to different situations. Now, we'll get into the weeds in a second, because actually using it rigorously is super difficult. But for an intuitive way of, is there a solution to a problem, it's, it's, it's actually quite handy. So the intermediate value theorem basically says, if something changes continuously, and it starts at one value, and ends up at another value, it must have gone through every value in between along the way. Okay. Which is to say, if you go from one place to another place, you've got to go everywhere in between to get there. Sure. So for example, let's say you're currently a meter and a half tall. I don't know how tall you are. That's to the nearest half meter. Is that about right? Yeah, a little bit more. A little bit more. Okay. And when you were a child, at some point, you were about half a meter tall. Yeah. So at some point in your life, you grew from half a meter to one and a half meters tall, Mm. which means if you pick any height in between there, at some point in your life, you were definitely that height. Yeah. Because you had to go through all of them. Yeah. That's the intermediate value theorem. Now, we can't say what age you were when that happened. We can't say anything about the situation where that occurred. We can just say it exists. So this yeah. is an existence theorem. This this thing exists. And the same deal with like if you wanted to cut, I don't know, like a pancake or a pie or a sandwich in half with a straight line. that you want to do, You've got a knife, you want to do a single cut, but it's some crazy shape. And you're like, oh, that's annoying. How do I cut this in half? But if you think about it, if, if you were to cut it all the way to one extreme side... It would be unfair because the piece on the left would be really big and the piece on the right would be tiny. Mm. And if you cut it on the other extreme side, it would be the reverse situation. Mm -hmm. And so one would be bigger than the other. But actually, if you move your knife continuously between those two positions, it must go through every possible ratio of the two halves in between. And so somewhere in the middle, 
there must be a point at which it switches from the right being bigger than the left to the left being bigger than the right. And that's the exact moment at which it would be perfectly fair to cut it at that point. I don't know why you've chosen that as your analogy, because it's a seesaw. <laughs> it's like you're using balancing scales where you put a little bit on one side, a little bit on the other until it all balances out. If you can only add or subtract the mass continuously, because seesaw, you put a whole kit on at once or something. And so you're suddenly abruptly changing the amount of mass on one end or the other. The seesaw will tip at some point. It can't go from one to the other without having gone through all the other degrees. Uh, ooh, yes, but it doesn't mean it will balance. It just means it'll move through the middle point. But that's the same as your pancake. Y so, yes, but the point of the pancake thing is there's a perfect equilibrium point in the middle where you cut, whereas a seesaw, you're just going to... The reason I'm being hesitant about the seesaw... Oh, what I'm saying is you have to put someone else on the other side yep. to try and balance it out. And then you just keep adding kids until you get it balanced. The reason I'm being hesitant is you're adding a whole child at a time. If you are gradually pouring water onto one end, it yeah, would be... Yeah, but well, you're the one that introduced kids. I know, I'm just, uh, I'm just saying that's why I'm being hesitant because... Mum might have a backpack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm only being careful because the intermediate value theorem only works if something has to change continuously. Yeah. And so if there's any any ability for an abrupt change, it no longer applies. So when you're cutting though, so you were saying, are yeah. you saying that you never finish cutting? No, no, you move the knife continuously from one side to the other. As you're cutting. And let me go back. Each time you cut, you're doing the same as doing a whole child. You're not, no, no, okay. So, so you've got a sandwich in front of you. Yeah. I feel like you're choosing this because you know how much I like food. Maybe, trying to distract you with, with the food. So, I'm talking about all the places you could cut it. So, you're hovering your knife above this sandwich, and you're like, oh, I can uh -huh. totally cut this sandwich right here. But if I cut it right here, the left side's bigger than the right side. That would be uh -huh. unfair. And so, you move your knife over to the other side, and you're like, I can cut it here. But if I cut it here, the right side's definitely bigger than the left side. Yeah. But at some point, as you are moving the knife from one position to the other, because it starts being unfair in one direction and ends up being unfair in the other direction, and you've continuously moved your knife, as you are moving it across, at some point it must have flipped from one yeah. side being bigger to the other side being bigger. And that point where, and you don't know where, this is the problem, you do, th this tells you nothing about where to cut. It just shows you that in the middle, at some point, unbeknownst to you at the time, you would have gone through the perfect cutting position without realizing yeah. And so all this theorem says is there would have been a perfect point where if you'd cut it then, you would have cut the sandwich perfectly in half. That's such a dumb theory. That's, it's great. That's the same it's thing so as like, it's, you know, it is the theory version of Morecambe and Wise. I was playing all the right notes, just not necessarily in the right order. It's like, not far off that. I will accept. <laughs> yeah. And it, like, it, it belongs to this class of theories that are called existence theories. It proves it exists, but is in no way helpful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Other than you know that there is a solution. Yeah. Like, I feel like inherently we all know that there is a point we could have got something right and didn't. And I feel that we are all used to doing that constantly. <laughs> so this is just a theory that says, do they use the pancake in the theory or did that come from you? So they use the pancake in the 2D case. They use sandwiches in the 3D case. Amazing. That's the traditional way of... of it, That's yeah. the traditional so way actually, of testing theories with pancakes and sandwiches. Yeah. And actually the way the theory goes is you can actually, with a single cut, cut through two pancakes and cut them both perfectly in half with one cut by using the same theory. But this time you're also changing the orientation of the knife continuously. 
And because right. you can move it backwards or forwards and move it on the angle, you can prove it's unfair one way, unfair the other way. And in the middle, it must have been fair to cut through both pancakes equally through the center. Okay, so if you had two pancakes stacked on top of each other, but it looked like a Venn diagram? Yeah, or even even next to each other on the counter, but you're going to cut in one continuous slicing action all the way across your countertop, going through both pancakes in the same line. You can cut them both fairly in half with a single cut. Hmm. That's very interesting. You can also do it in the Venn diagram arrangement that you've mentioned. Yeah. And then the ham sandwich one gets a bit ridiculous. You can use the same idea of the intermediate value theorem that if you had two slices of bread and a piece of ham, which are separated anywhere in the solar system on, on Earth, so the, the, it can be a totally deconstructed sandwich, you can still, there's a direction where you can make a single cut in one plane that would cut all three perfectly in half oh. without having to change the direction you were cutting in. So a, another super useful bit of maths. You've just blown my mind. Well. That means at anywhere there is always a ham sandwich that exists. It's just that, that all the pieces might be in separate places. Exactly. That's deep. I mean, that wasn't the intention of that theory, but that's what I took away from it. Good. They're suggesting that the hams, it's a sandwich when they're, not, they're nowhere near each other. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a conceptual sandwich. It's a generalized sandwich. But to be fair, what you've taken away from that theorem is just as practical as the actual intention of the theorem. So, you know. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll let you get back to solving the problem. Now, when it comes to the table, now it's actually practical because as you rotate the table you're testing every intermediate position and you just keep rotating until it stops wobbling. So in that case, the existence proof is enough. You just start rotating and you wait until it stops. And the kind of hand wavy version is, if you think about it, when you sit at the table, it's going to rock in a direction. Mm -hmm. So let's say it rocks backwards and forwards in one direction. And it's because of the ground, not the table. The table's fine. Mm. If you then rotate the table around 90 degrees... It's going to rock in a different direction yes. relative to the table, but the same direction relative to the uneven earth. Yeah. Yeah. So from the table's point of view, it starts from rocking this way and ends up rocking the other way. And there must have been a point where it swaps from rocking this way to rocking that way. And the point where it transitions from one to the other yeah. is where it's perfectly stable. Mm, got it. So you're kind of drawing a line between two legs. Yeah. And then... It's at what point does that line start to be between the other two legs? Yes, perfect. Except mathematicians don't like that kind of hand wavy, this sort of works. <laughs> and it turns out turning that intuition, which actually works all the time, into a rigorous proof is super difficult and is not yet finished. So we have not finished proving that this definitely works, which is why this group of four mathematicians from Australia, the Monash mathematicians, hey. are still chipping away at the problem. And I imagine a non-zero number of people who listen to this podcast also watch maths videos on YouTube mm -hmm. um, because that's our primary way of promoting the podcast. There is a fantastic channel called Mathologer, which a lot of people may have come across. And the main presenter on Mathologer, a guy called Burkhard, Burkhard Polster. Oh my gosh, that's the coolest name ever. Burkhard Polster. Yeah, German mathematician, lives in Melbourne. Great guy. Why isn't that your name? Because Burkhard got there first. Oh, fair. Yeah, otherwise, of course. Burkhard Polster. Why would I have Matt Parker? That's a crowded search term. <laughs> and Marty Ross. The, that's the other person who works on the channel, Marty Ross. They're the Beck Hill. And, and well, the, yeah, you want to, you're the Marty Ross, I guess. <laughs> if I get to be Burkhard Polster. 
And then they have a few other people who also help out with working on the scripts and testing things and all that kind of jazz. But they're, they're the main two. They're also two of the authors on this paper. Wow. So a lot of people will know Burkhard from Mathologer. They're also one of the leading world experts on the wobbly table problem. Wow. I think that's amazing. So there you go. I mean, I have a channel, but I'm just a recreational mathematician, whereas Burkhard's doing proper math research. Well, I say proper math research on wobbly tables at um, Monash. And so they did a bunch of research, and that angle, that 36 and a half degrees, is actually the cube angle. So if you get a cube, I'm holding a Rubik's Cube for reference, and you balance it on one of its corners, perfectly upright. So Matt is currently holding the Rubik's Cube so that a corner is on his thumb. If you imagine someone spinning a basketball, a bit like that, but with a Rubik's Cube. Yeah, exactly like that. I'm, I'm spinning yeah, it very slowly it, now. Yeah, he's spinning it with his other hand. And so if you do that, and then you look at... So there's the top corner. And now he's he's put his pants on his head. He's dancing around. <laughs> yeah, right. That's nothing, nothing, nothing to do with the maths. <laughs> so you got the top corner up here. Yeah. Then you, you, there's three edges that meet at that corner. Yes. If this is perfectly balanced, those edges are exactly 35.26 degrees. Ah. And they used the notion of a cube like this as part of their proof to generalize all rectangular tables. I won't go into the details. There's some great diagrams in the paper. In fact, we, we could tweet the diagram. Let me just check to make sure it doesn't look terrible. Oh, they got some great diagrams of wobbly tables on ridiculous math surfaces. Oh, we're tweeting that. Yay. So we will tweet the crazy tables on the surfaces because that is awesome. And then there is a diagram. There it is. Oh, it's not very exciting. Just shows a cube on its corner. And there's a great sentence. I mean, it's a great sentence from a math point of view. Now, if I read it out in isolation... Notice that every table is similar to one of the gray rectangles shown in the right triangle, created by moving the point A prime from P to B prime. Mm. Amazing, amazing stuff. Real. Some great stuff. <laughs> we'll do the tables on the weird surface. Sounds like a haiku. So they've managed to prove on a continuous surface with no angles greater than this cube angle, if you balance it on a corner, mm. the theorem definitely holds. All tables can be de-wobbled by rotating them around. So what happens if... If the angle is greater than that on the surface. Oh, it it almost definitely probably still works. We just haven't managed to prove it definitely, definitely well. That's just the limit of the proof, but not necessarily a practical limit because we're pretty sure it works above oh, yeah. that anyway. Like my argument would be, like what I was thinking is if it's over that degrees, does that just mean that the table will slide? <laughs> you're on a, you're on like a hill and so you can't yeah, turn around well, because you're just going to slide down the hill. Fun fact, none, nothing we're talking about here says anything about the angle the surface of the table ends up on. Just that it won't wobble. It can be at some crazy angle, like all your drinks will slide off. Yeah, but yeah. not because the table's wobbling. That's what I was yeah. thinking, because it doesn't mean that the surface of the table will be flat. It just means Absolutely it won't wobble. Absolutely not. No, it just means it won't <laughs> wobble. That's all we were asked about. Which kind of brings us to the second half of the problem. Is there a surface where they won't? Well, it just needs to be a discontinuous surface, and then it won't. And they point out in the paper, considering our example of a discontinuous ground, it should be clear that a wobbling table on a tiled floor may defy our table-turning efforts. Oh, because of the grouting. So if the floor is tiled, you can have sudden jumps. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, it can be at different... Some might be at an angle slightly and... Yeah, and they're all di different angles, and it doesn't smoothly go from one tile to the next. Mm. It abruptly changes. And so it doesn't mean that you can't do this. And in fact, in my humble practical experience, it still works. But technically, if you've got a discontinuous ground, this will not necessarily work. 
So they're, they're the exact parameters around when you can and cannot de-wobble a table. And I think it's interesting that of all the things in maths that have, number one, pervaded most of maths, like anyone involved in maths or recreational maths has heard more often than not of the wobbly table problem. It's one of the better known problems. If you haven't, I hope you've enjoyed hearing about it for the first time. It's an amazing theorem. Uh, and even general public, because like, it makes it into those life hacky kind of fun fact lists that you can rotate a table, stop it from wobbling. But yeah. yet, it's not a mathematically proven result yet. We are still chipping away to make sure the math is definitely correct. And that's that's the end. That's my slightly wobbly argument, which if you rotate enough, shows you that you can de-wobble tables under some circumstances. <laughs> okay, right. So to bring it back to James's problem. Oh, yeah. So James said, given a four-legged table, can you always find a spot on a surface where the table will sit without wobbling? The answer is yes. In fact, you don't have to move it. You can just rotate it. Assuming the four legs form a rectangle, they're all the same length. There's not a slope greater than 35.26 degrees and the surface is nice and smooth. Like there's no sudden jumps in in the surface. It's like a smooth, continuous thing. But within those conditions, which in my experience, most pubs conform to, then yes. Okay. And the second part of James's problem said, or put another way, does there exist a surface on which a table will always wobble? Well, yes, yeah, sort of. Yes, if the legs are weird lengths, you can't fix that by moving it around. And... Almost definitely if you include discontinuous surfaces that like tiled surfaces with a or like or if you're dining on a staircase, situations like that, then there very well is not a solution to stop the table from wobbling. Got it. So a continuous surface is a flat surface but can go in any angle? No, it can have bumps and things, but as long as there's not a sudden jump to a different level, it just bows up and down. It's like a warped surface. Now I see why this is so hard, because at what point does a curved surface become a, like, a continuous become a discontinuous? As soon as the derivative, first derivative decides to disappear. That's the short answer. I don't even know what that means. There you go. But you know what? That's not the problem that James sent us. Yeah, that's not the problem. I mean, I'm annoyed at James, because James definitely gave me more problems (laughs) than I had before. But in relation to James' problem, I feel like you've answered both of those. Thank you. So there was uh, two parts to that problem, so I'm going to give you a ding, ding. Ding, ding. All right. Thank you. And I've learned a bit more about that wobbly table thing. I didn't realize it was so complicated. And about conceptual sandwiches. I want a conceptual sandwich. People, try it. Try it in a pub. Let us know if it works. Beck, someone titled Mandy from Mafra, went to our problem posing page at a problemsquared.com and they put in a problem that reads as follows. If you had to choose, which would be more effective for your dental hygiene? A toothbrush without toothpaste or toothpaste without a toothbrush? And they have come to us because, as it turns out, we have a history of discussing optimal toothbrushing. Yeah. Well, first of all, the way this question is phrased, you could suggest that you're saying if you had to choose, what would you make the most effective way of doing it? Like if you had to choose... If you had to choose... Oh, sorry. Oh, so if you were the tooth hygiene deity... Yeah. And you get to... I could choose which one works best. But I'm pretty sure that's not what Mandy meant. I'm just being pedantic. So I thought I would answer this as a little uh, dinglet, a little wing ding, which we still haven't decided which one we prefer, so I've decided to go with both. So in episode 003, Teeth, Tips and Defining Decades, I think it was called. It was early. Really early. We answered a different question about the optimal way to brush teeth. And I got some advice from a professional dentist 
wonderful Sophie from Adelaide, where I hail from, and also one of the honeymooners who came to visit me on set of Makeaway Takeaway. Look at that. We've come full circle. Pretty sure I talked about yeah. that in the main pod and not on the Patreon bonus podcast. I think that was the main pod. But, you know, if no one's sure, yeah. you should just sign up as a Patreon and listen to our bonus show just in case. Yeah, it's, it's the, the safest, safest way. way to go about it. So I was pretty sure that I already knew the answer to this, but I did go back to Sophie and check and she has confirmed this. So one of the things that we learnt from that episode, I'm not spoiling anything, but one of the things we found out was that uh, saliva is like a wonder substance. It's totally underrated and it has amazing antibacterial properties. Basically, saliva is almost like our mouth's own toothpaste. and Nature's toothpaste, they call it. It is nature's toothpaste. That's why if I ever have a dry mouth, I ask someone to spit in my mouth. I don't do that. I never do that. Oh, and I wouldn't recommend it, especially in this. For other reasons. Yeah. <laughs> the great thing about toothpaste is that often it has fluoride in it, and that helps add a protective layer to our teeth. Toothpaste have different qualities, but mainly it's the properties that it has to help create a protective layer assisting our saliva. That's more of a long-term game, right? Actually, it only sort of lasts for about 24 hours. It's not like you get a build-up of toothpaste. Oh. It's like it wears off. The opposite. It is oh. the opposite. So... You know, your teeth are most protected probably from about half an hour after you brush your teeth and then get less and less. So that's why we found out in that episode why you shouldn't rinse after you finish brushing your teeth. You should only spit. People should go back and listen to it because it's really fascinating. You learn loads more about teeth. Great episode. But to answer this question, essentially marketing is the reason that we think the toothpaste is so important versus a toothbrush. Basically, the brush is what gets rid of the plaque and the buildup of food around and on your teeth. It's the brush that does the majority of the work. The toothpaste is sort of there to aid your saliva in something that it already does and to make your breath smell nice, you know? And again, that's a relatively new thing that humans feel that we need this minty freshness to make us feel clean. Minty fresh, yeah. It's like in the same way that I take peppermint oil tablets for tummy bugs. So even when I burp, I feel quite clean, but I'm not. I'm just burping peppermint. Anyway, I'm a bit all over the shop today. Mainly because I'm aware of how short this problem is if I don't go off on tangents. But the answer is toothbrush. Toothbrush is loads more effective. Toothbrush. So if you could only fit one item into your toiletry bag and you had to choose between a toothbrush or toothpaste, take a toothbrush. Because in terms of dental hygiene, you will do far better brushing your teeth without toothpaste than you would just moving toothpaste around your teeth with your finger. I wish I'd known when I was a teenager running late for school because I used to just put the toothpaste in my mouth. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. I wouldn't even use my finger to rub around my teeth. Oh, really? I would just squirt some toothpaste directly into my mouth. Minty fresh time. So if you're packing for a trip under a really restrictive weight limit or you need to run out the door now, you've only got time to grab either the toothbrush or the toothpaste, mm. grab the toothbrush. Yeah. I'm not saying don't use toothpaste. It still has good qualities, but just saying that your toothbrush does... Does more than um, heavy lifting. Than you're probably giving it credit for. I would very much recommend anyone who hasn't listened to episode 003 because we do a deep dive into more of that stuff. Sophie's given the thumbs up, so that's absolutely correct. Toothbrush is more effective. So there you go. Given you went to our resident dental expert, <laughs> who turns out we have on call, and it's a one-sided. It's not like it's a, oh, this, if that. It's no. Toothbrush. Toothbrush all the way. I'm going to give you a ding. My only extra question would be, if you haven't got your toothbrush, what, what's the optimal strategy then? Eat an apple? or well, Apples are quite acidic, so I'm going to say cheese. Eating cheese because Eat calcium. Cheese. That, okay, so that's my guess. Why do It'd we keep creating to, more yeah. problems when we're solving them? 
Poor Sophie. Sorry. She's going to get Sorry. some really random questions now. We've just created a problem. I guess this will be my any other business. Not next episode because... In the distant future. In the in the distant future. I will I will come back to you. Do you know what? Let's put it out to you guys, the listeners. Yeah. We're, yeah we've you spent so much time... We're doing all the work here. ...solving your problems. Yeah. Why don't you tell us? I want expert opinions or something with research because that's, that's, that's what we I do. I want guesses. Wild you want guesses. guesses. Okay. Oh, yeah. How about if you have a guess, send it directly to Matt on Twitter. No, 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 no. Send it to both of us, but just, just give us a measurement where you are on the guess expert spectrum so we know. Because it makes me wonder where gum comes in. Oh, chewing gum. You know how they say like, oh, gum, it helps fight decay. The reason it helps fight decay is because chewing means that your saliva glands start producing more saliva. Like gum takes credit for all the stuff that your mouth is capable of already. But I do wonder if the gum helps remove the stuff between the teeth. Random guesses from the internet. Let us know. Us. Yeah. Or a problem posing page at aproblemsquared.com. You can put your solution there. Select solution in the drop down. Should we get into any other business? Yeah. So a lot of people enjoyed your summary of the different wedding anniversary gifts. Yay. But we have what I have deemed the best suggestion that came in from French guy... CH, like a French guy living in Switzerland, I guess. At French guy CH says, hello, a problem squared. Regarding the wedding anniversary, I think they should be named after the periodic table of elements. Ooh. That would make things a lot easier to remember. They address me directly and say, so happy oxygen anniversary. And oxygen, um, yeah, eight protons is the eighth element of the periodic table. Great system. The problem with that. No problem with that. <laughs> How do we work out what the negative anniversary is? Because they've started on the first element. It's antimatter. You get antimatter for the first okay, one. Okay, right, yeah. So you get anti-hydrogen, which I think you can get from cosmic ray collisions. So you get a cloud chamber for your negative first birthday. Heavier elements are harder, I think, to get the anti-matter version of. You, you just had a wedding anniversary, did you not? Yeah. In fact, the episode that that came out on was on my wedding anniversary. Serendipitous. <laughs> on my iron uh, and or candy anniversary. And what, what number is that? Six. Carbon. Mm. So I'd say diamond. That's your diamond wedding anniversary. Or graphite. <laughs> or graphite. Or a pencil. Yeah, you've got options, as previously discussed. Uh, the downside to this suggestion is, of course, your gold wedding anniversary isn't until 79 years. Your platinum isn't until 78 <laughs> years. But you get them both at once. That's kind of nice. Tin. Tin's your 50th. That's nice. Yeah, the Jewelers Association won't be happy with that. But then again, you can get a beryllium thing on your fourth wedding anniversary. That's pretty cool. Neon. Neon on your 10th. That's a party. Come on. That's nice. That's uh, good. I'm on, I'm on board. That's in two years. Can we do a neon wedding anniversary for you and Lucy? Absolutely. And we'll have a big party. That would be great. 90s themed. <laughs> I'm so excited. And we did get an email from the original couple who were due to celebrate their negative one wedding anniversary. And they have confirmed. They say absolutely 100% earned a ding on your solution. So they emailed in to give us total sign off. Uh, they, they were very, very uh, impressed that we sent them a gift. And they have given us uh, the, the negative one ding. Yay, that makes me happy. Although what I will say is, I mean, that episode has not been out for long. No. But I've just gone on Wikipedia and I can see that no one has added oh. the negative and zeroth anniversary suggestions. So um, Disappointing. Just putting it out there. It's been, what, 24 hours? By the time you listen to this, yeah. if it's still not up there. Get onto it. 
this episode comes out two weeks after that one, so surely in two weeks. Yeah. We also have some any other business regarding the Spotify ratings of this podcast. Oh, yeah. Because we worked out in the last episode that if you don't have Apple products or anything like that, actually the majority of people listening to this show listen on Spotify. So they've yeah. introduced a rating system where it's very easy to give a star rating to any podcast that you listen to on there. We heavily implied people should do that. And we had somewhere, I think in the low 300s, we had sort of a low 300 amount of ratings and, and five stars, which is great. Five star podcast. And then we looked at a podcast of unnecessary detail. Yep. Just to benchmark. Which is your other podcast with Helen Arnie and Steve Mould. Yeah. And they had more reviews sort of in the late 300s, but they had 0.1 less of a star. So they're on 4.9 stars. And then we also looked up No Such Thing as a Fish, which had like five stars and over 7,000 reviews or something. Yeah, yeah. One thing at a time. We put it out there that because I think it was like 22% or somewhere around the 20% of our listeners listen on Spotify. It was quite a high amount. So we worked out that if everyone who listens to this on Spotify gave us a five-star rating, we could beat No Such Thing as a Fish. We could beat Fish. Right. Yeah. The episode went out 24 hours ago. It's not been long. It's only been out for a day. We've gone up from the low 300s to... I checked just before we started recording our Any Other Business, and we were on 515. Yes! Come on! We've gone up by... Almost 200. That's great. In the last day. So we're beating podcast of necessary detail. And we still have five stars. Take that, me. Yeah. That'll show me. <laughs> but what I thought was interesting mm-hmm. is that a podcast of unnecessary detail has jumped up oh. in the number of views as well. Not as much as us. And they're still on 4.9 stars. There have been no more episodes. Huh. They've gone from like mid to late 300s to... 464 ratings, which means I think about 100 people listening to this Interesting. went and gave a podcast of unnecessary detail yeah. <laughs> a rating after hearing this. And they're like, you can't tell us what to do. Yeah. We will five-star whatever podcast we want. So, and, and rightfully so. No, exactly. Exactly. And I, by all means, do not want them to bring down the rating for any podcast. I just want ours to beat them. Are we closing in on fish? That's the, that's the important thing here. <laughs> Well, I mean, look, fish have gone up, but obviously not as intensely as, as we have. So fish is yes. like on 7.3. We're, We're gaining on them. 7.3 thousand they have with five stars. So Oh, okay. We are gaining. I don't know why I said 7.3 thousand. What a weird way to say that. Great way to put it. That's what I would have said. <laughs> I'm very tempted to look at our listener statistics for each episode to work out Within the first 24 hours, how many do we get? How fewer do you get? Oh, and how fast it tapers off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then take that and apply it to how many people gave us five stars in the first 24 hours. So we could maybe guess at what point will we overtake no such thing as a fish. (laughs) Yeah. I would love to do that, but I only just thought of it now. (laughs) I never thought I'd be the one to say this, but instead of doing the maths, I'm just going to wait. Let's just see what happens. All right. Or, you know, everyone listening can go do that and we'll be fine. And then it will be two weeks. That's that's when it will be. Yeah, come on. Spotify, <laughs> get on there. So there we go. There's a little update on that. Now, each episode, we like to thank our Patreon supporters who allow this podcast to exist through their financial support. And so that anyone out there who isn't able to financially support us can also enjoy it as well. So in order to do that, we randomly 
have three names picked out by a system that Matt has in place. I think it's a spreadsheet. It's a spreadsheet. Um, so yeah, if you're a Patreon supporter, you, you may get thanked personally by us at the end of the episode. So jumping straight in today, we would like to thank Mike Bell, Elias Sodonis, Blake the Pattern, or one word. Thank you very much. You are Stone Cold Legends, and may the force be with you, or I don't know, something to tie it back to the beginning, Matt. <laughs> oh, wow. Well closed. <laughs> nice. Now it looks like I was planning it all along. This podcast was brought to you by myself, Beck Hill, my co-host, Matt Parker, and our producer, Lauren Armstrong-Carter. You can find pictures related to things we talked about in this podcast or other stuff in the show notes of this episode or on our social media accounts, which are at a problem squared on Instagram and Twitter. So Matt, as you know, after the last episode, yes, I'm trying to slowly poison us with uh my office still smells <laughs> of awful artificial cheese that's been aged. See, I wasn't sure if that was your office or the fact that it never <laughs> left my nostrils. Um, which which of these uh, stale, waterlogged crisps would you like to try? I think it's your. I picked the first one you made. Do you want the one with what looks like a monkey skateboarding? Yeah. Okay. Here you go. All right. So uh, these ones are called chi. Well, they're called chi dot toes. T o z. So C-H-E-E-T-O-Z, and um, uh, they're made in Iran. I believe these were given to me by a member of Unnecessary Detail. I think someone from the Not audience. Not a member, but someone from the audience yeah. brought them along to the next one. Everyone who comes me. along is a member of an evening of Unnecessary Detail. Uh, so, um, I mean, all the ingredients are in um, Arabic, oh. I think that is. I don't think any of us are fluent. Okay, they look better. Than, than now the, the other now the, ones did. the tradition we've established is you, whoever opens smells, other person tastes. Okay. I mean, they smell quite stale. They mm. smell like packing foam. Oh, they look like twisties. Yeah, they're more. Well, they look. They're more like the the Cheeto ones from the states. Okay, I'm going for a snack. Bright orange. So stale. Crunch, good crunch sound though. What's the yeah, flavor like? Yeah, like styrofoam. They taste good though. They taste good. Let me do a snap in the mic so you can ready. That's not bad. I'm not eating another one. Considering they've been in there since oh. I did that, an evening of unnecessary detail about 2018. 2018? These are four years old. Oh. When did they go off? Let's have a look. When's their use by date? I mean, I mean, they according don't have to one. tradition, we should have bought them a clock. <laughs> Call back. <laughs>